from Genesis 40, 23 through 41, uh, 16, and 25 through 36. This is going to be a little long. Yet the chief up there did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of the Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing was fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh proceeds to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming, and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. The word of the Lord. So next week, um, Jeff Christ will be preaching. He is a uh, minister for Reformed University Fellowship to the United States Air Force Academy. Uh, he's going to be finishing up our, our study through the book of Genesis. 
He's wonderful. There's also, if you're in college, you can come hang out with his family and my family and another family, and there's going to be tacos, and it's going to be outside. And if you're worried about being social distanced, I will throw your taco meat into your tortilla. It'll be marvelous. But now that we're finishing uh, the, the, the book of Genesis, one of the things we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about politics and what is Scripture's vision for activity for Christians in politics. It ought to be interesting. I have uh, been uh, very glad to be your pastor for a year and a half. Um, and so, if I'm no longer pastor after that, I'm really sorry for offending you in really unnecessary ways. But as a way of, you know, just warning you, you will be offended by my sermon when it comes to politics, especially if you hold any opinion whatsoever politically, I am going to step on your toes on purpose. So, be aware. But we're finishing up the book of Genesis. Genesis forms and shapes people's understanding for the world. It gives them stories so that they can frame their understanding for whatever they may come across. Alright? So imagine, for instance, you are in the Exodus community and some absolutely scary Egyptians, the most militarized uh, country in the world is coming after you. How in the world are you to be reassured that uh, God is with you? He gives them these stories. God speaks to his people and reminds them through these stories that he is not going to quit on them. He has made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He sealed it in a covenant and pledged his own blood in it that it's going to happen. That through them, God was going to bless the entire world. And so, sin and death would be defeated. That is the hope. And so he reassures them, despite their circumstances, God is with them, and he does it through these stories. And you will hear about it in the story about Joseph. So even when disastrous things happen in your life, we know that ultimately it is working for your good in some form or fashion, according to his will. We may not be able to ever reconcile it in our brain. Maybe we weren't meant to. But we rely on the one who's got all of history in his hands. It comes through the pen of his finger and is written by one who cares and loves you. Not one who's out of control and capricious, but one who is gracious. And so he tells these stories. These stories are given to God's people to frame their understanding, to reassure them, to give them confidence when they should be fearful. Guy Ross is a host of a wonderful podcast and show called How I Built This. It interviews successful entrepreneurs, finding out how did they become successful. So things like Uber or Rad Power Bikes or uh, Wayfair or Lime Scooters that are everywhere all over the place in Denver or Bird Scooters. I found them in trees before. You know, anyway, so those are successful people that that uh, Guy Raz interviews. And he always asks the question, especially in his book recently, he always asks every entrepreneur, what, uh, uh, was it more luck or hard work? Luck or hard work? And often their answer is yes. In fact, oftentimes what we see is luck is the providential hand of God working in their lives. 
And for the Christian, when we understand that God is with us and present with us, then that gives us the ability to work hard and with confidence for the sake of our neighbor. But much of their situations of these entrepreneurs and benefits that enabled them success wasn't something they chose. Rather, it was there without their effort. It was, in a certain sense, we would say, by grace alone. So let's think, let us think about this. Okay? Do you control the parents you're born to? Your parents and the family you're born to, in a lot of ways, determine how you, what's going to happen in your life. But you don't control it. So in a certain sense, it has to be God's providence, and what many people say is luck. Or no matter no no matter of hard work is ever going to for many people is going to ever get them out of kind of like inherited uh, um, uh, poverty, or you know isn't going to be able to get them out of institutionalized situations, which would be impossible for them to get out of with hard work. And so it, hard work can't get you there. And so the question for God's people often is being answered by this book of Genesis, how in the world did God build this? And the answer is, by his own work. You see, for us, if God is ultimate, what does that mean about you and I in our, in our, in our work? It's secondary. It's creaturely. The creator is the one in whom upholds the entire universe. And he is with us and for us, and he cares for his people for his sake and his purposes, not necessarily my purposes, right? And we need to understand that because if you think that God is with you like a consultant to help you with your purposes in life, you are going to be absurdly disappointed. I want to ride my bike up Cheyenne Canyon in less than 20 minutes, but it ain't going to happen without you know, God's grace sometimes, usually in the form of a tailwind getting me up there. Just putting that out there. God is the ultimate one who's in control. But he also works through his creatures in their effort. So the age-old question, is it human responsibility or God's sovereignty? And the answer is yes. I know that it's just pleasing for many people, but somehow beyond our understanding, God can control and He executes whatever He wants. And He does it oftentimes through our actions. When it goes beyond our actions and somehow He works out His purposes beyond the creaturely control, we would definitely say that uh, it is um, a miracle. But the sovereign Creator and the creation are legitimate and authentic, and, we, and, and the Creator is the ultimate. And so we can know this. God is working out the redemption of the world in, even in the midst of our terrible situations, even if the circumstances are completely bleak. He's doing it for our good, for the good of the world, knowing that, knowing this, we understand that God hasn't abandoned us and that He's working. And He empowers our faithfulness. And oftentimes, though, we act in our default mode in this world is to work, work hard. Don't get me wrong, hard work is good, but if you believe that your fate is determined by the amount of work that you put in, you are going to leave on the altar and sacrifice people like your family, your children, friendship,
more than that, if you think about it, it's the work of our hands that determine a factor of our outcome of our lives, and that we are the captains of our own fate, in order that at the end of our lives, when we, we get to our funerals, we want to be able to have someone play Frank Sinatra's Baby, I Did It My Way, we need to understand that, that that's just that. It's just frightening. How'd you do at the end? The verdict is always out. And so, what do you have to do then? If the verdict is always out, if it's up to your hard work to determine the, the, your life, what does that mean? It means work hard. And so what I have to do is give you a rah-rah speech, a pep talk, so that you can face Monday. No, the only pep talk that God gives His people is that He is present with us in the deepest, darkest, terrible situations and in the pit. And sometimes people don't get out of the pit. Here we have the story of Joseph. We have doubt, we have cynicism, and they're caused by our circumstances, and they're caused by continual difficulty. And we yell out, God, do you care? God, do you notice? And Joseph is probably saying that. And ultimately, we know in the story that at the cross, God does notice, God does care. And he gets the silence in order that we may be heard. So God, who covenantally bounds himself to his people, in whom is personified in Joseph, and he's shown that he has not abandoned his promises and the steadfast love that he has made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is with Joseph, even though he was at the pit of a prison in Egypt. And Pharaoh is the leader. So that is like the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. Forgotten for two years by people. People you've interacted, is there anything worse than being forgotten? So Joseph's at the bottom. But because God was with Joseph, we can learn that faithfulness happens wherever you find yourself. We learn that faithfulness happens wherever we find ourselves. And we learn that He is with us for the sake of the world. He is with us for the sake of the world. So faithfulness happens wherever you find yourself. Joseph is at the bottom of the pit in prison, in Egypt, under Pharaoh, and forgotten. See, Pharaoh is the worst of the worst. Everyone anticipates, hey, he's just the enemies of God's people. He's got to be forsaken. He's at the bottom. Have you ever felt forsaken? Do you ever feel forgotten by God? And Joseph is there for two years. You can imagine after the first week, Joseph tries saying, uh, yeah, you're going to bless me, you're going to bless your people in order that they may be a blessing. I'm at the, at the bottom of a pit in the enemy's land. Pharaoh is probably going to kill me. This is awful. Not only that, Joseph had the integrity not to do something with Potiphar's wife. I mean, count the children here that we have. Good. Okay. He wanted to have some very indecent relationships with with uh, Joseph, and Joseph's like, nah, that's all right, girl. And she is missed, lies, and throws him in prison. And so Joseph's probably saying, all right, God. And then I just said, all right, your way has gotten me where? At the very bottom of the pit. This is terrible. And oftentimes we probably feel like that's what Joseph's there. But does Joseph, uh, what do we see from Joseph? You see him bring him out, and then suddenly he says to Pharaoh, uh, you know, now's my time to get back at Pharaoh, show him what's up, show him he's really the boss. No, instead of being mean and evil to Pharaoh,
instead of tricking him, what does Joseph do? He's truthful and faithful to the one true God by being kind and loving to the who, who in the eyes of all the, the Jews will come and say, this is the most evil man alive. It is something backwards. And so we learn something from this interaction. We learn that it is in this backdrop that God calls his people to be relationally faithful to him against his opposition. So he calls them to be faithful in the midst of Egypt. God's people are to be faithful when they're in the exile in Babylon. God's people are called to be faithful in Rome. And we are called to be faithful in contemporary America. And to realize that our neighbor, even the state, is not necessarily the enemy. Your neighbor isn't the enemy. It's interesting that Pharaoh isn't depicted here as an evil figure, rather one in whom Joseph honors, helps, and blesses. And it is all for the good of the world. We need to be careful that we're not demonizing people, people that God loves and whom God will work through in order to serve his people and his world and his purposes. Instead, you see, if we are careful that we're not, we need to be careful because in demonizing people God loves, we may instead find ourselves loving the demons. See, there's always something behind in working in people. I'm not saying that people somehow need to get off the, you know, they, they're no longer responsible for their sin, but there's a way of the world. There's an ethical system working behind this present age and working behind people. And so, oftentimes, those whom we label as the enemy of God's people may not actually be the enemy. Paul says that there's an enemy behind the enemy, so much that in Ephesians 6 and 12, he says that we're not waging a war against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities that are in control. And so I say, I'll now give this to you. What is in control of our world, and what is the big enemy of Christianity nowadays for you and for me? It is not a person with a face, but rather it is a principality, a way of doing things behind that. And I would say that the biggest enemy of the church right now, at least this week, is this, tribalism. The incessant need to prove your worth and value and righteousness within a group of people. And, or, and, and that causes you then to demonize your opponents. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, read two different sides on Twitter and watch how they dehumanize each other within 30 seconds. You will know that. And the scary thing is, is that it has infiltrated churches so that at times I always feel myself, and I have to be, have a little confessional here, that at times I feel myself wanting to dehumanize, to make fun of people who are on the opposite side of me. So for example, one of the easiest ones for me is those churches that decided to meet without any social distancing, without any mask wearing, I automatically want to demonize them in my heart. But what is that? What is at the heart of that? What is moving me to want to do that to my brothers and sisters? It is this, the way of tribalism. 
throne. And so you notice that Joseph doesn't do that. His neighbor isn't his enemy. Let me put it this way. If God hates all the same people you hate, you are worshiping the God of your own image and not the God of the Bible. Uh, numerous people have said that. And so that's the way it is. So this can happen easily. We make an artificial bifurcation between God's creation and the spiritual. We make distinctions between the spiritual person and the carnal person. We make distinctions between the fleshly and, and, and then uh, also with the spiritual. And that is where the true distinction ought to be, is this. We take God's creation, His good things, and we aim them or use them in ways that are opposed to His ethic and His kingdom. Okay? Let me make it even first. I like whistleball. My kids have whistleball bats. It is good and honoring to God when my son swings that bat at a ball. It is unethical when my son uses it as a Jedi lightsaber to cut off the hand of the kid who is playing uh, Darth Vader at the time in their backyard. That is not what the whistleball bat is for. All right. So many times in our creation, we see God's, we see people taking God's stuff and using it in a way that He wouldn't want. That's the distinction that we need to make. But tribalism in our day bifurcates people in and out, righteous, unrighteous, sinner and saint. We make them into these distinctions. We do it happily all the time. And we are doing it happily over masks, over politics, over everything. See, we're often oversensitized to this. We think that, that obviously the other side is persecuting me. The state, they decide to do things according to health code regulations. One, you should be very happy that the state has health code regulations when you show up to Chipotle, okay? Why? Because it could be dangerous to eat Chipotle. Now, if an epidemiologist says that it is very good or, you know, you need to consider wearing masks or whatever, maybe you should consider it. That's all I'm saying here. But then to demonize people who don't wear masks or to treat the person who's walking down the aisle in the wrong way and the opposite of the arrow as if they have got the cooties, or and somehow they are a petri dish waiting to lick you or something, that is wrong, okay? You don't do that because they're a person. They're not the enemy. They are your neighbor, okay? They are your neighbor. So, the great enemy is this, tribalism. And so we, we, we like to distinguish the mask wearers, the non-mask wearers. We like to distinguish between our politics, and that's the power of the age. But we need to be people who fight against that by being kind to those whom we disagree with. To actually hear people's arguments. Why don't you wear a mask? Tell me. Why do you wear a mask? Please tell me. And discuss it. See, daily faithfulness demonstrates where we place our trust. And so, it is not by labeling uh, those other people over there, but rather it is by daily li 
it's of faithfulness that we live the Christian life daily. And that is how it is done. For Joseph, notice how he works. He works hard. He gives a thorough, thorough uh, way of doing things for Pharaoh. Okay? He doesn't go and say, Oh, you people who will go out and, and uh, use up all your resources. How foolish and ridiculous are you? You need to stop doing that. He doesn't do that. He works within his realm and he is faithful. He doesn't go on Twitter or Facebook to show defiance to the government. He doesn't promote a tent revival that is going to win back the culture. He doesn't even hate the culture. He doesn't even say anything negative about Pharaoh, about throwing him in the pit. Nor does he say anything about that ridiculous cupbearer who forgot him for two years at the bottom of the pit. He doesn't say anything to him. He doesn't dehumanize and villainize his neighbor. And so he demonstrates faithfulness in the way that he lives. It is not, we know that God is with him not because he glowed with the effulgence of God. No, it was because he lived and worked in a way that God was in charge and was still present in the moment that he was in. And so, many of us, though, we like to look for the right circumstances to be faithful. When this culture is back to normal, then I will be faithful. I'll stop scolding people on Twitter when people are stop when they stop being so stupid. Um, I've said that, uh, <laughs> and so it is the faithful presence of individuals and communities living lives according to love, the love that they have experienced and have been shown in Jesus Christ, a love and a, and a presence that refuses to shame and villainize our neighbors that changes culture, systems, and institutions. It is God's kindness that leads to repentance. God shows us, and the story shows us, a better way of living in the world than going around and pontificating about everything that we could possibly think of that is wrong with a culture. That is the way the world is changed. There's one person that said it this week, if you are fighting a culture war, you are losing. Better yet, if you if you find yourself fighting the culture war, you have lost. The way to actually win people over is not through Twitter, not through legislation, not through politics, but knowing ultimately that God is for you and that God is with you. Romans 13, 1 Peter 1 tells them to honor the authorities, live as good citizens, pray for those who are in power. In the, in the Exodus, they are told to be still, and your God will fight for you. God is the one who fights for his people. The early church, when they saw things that they were up against, the ways that they protested the sexual ethics at the time was to live holy sexual lives lives according to the sexual ethic God had laid out. Little bits of faithfulness. Their protests weren't waged with virtue signaling on social media, but rather with prayer, preaching, and daily action to make the unethical unimaginable. Protesting may be included, especially with all the oppression in this world. We need to speak out. We need to be public about it. 
but it is the daily acts of love and union with Christ for His glory that this world is renewed by the Spirit. It is these little actions of daily love in our families, in our workplaces, with our neighbors, amongst those whom we deem our enemies, that the culture is won over. The culture is not won over by yelling, by violence, by getting on Fox News and, and, and screaming at people, or CNN and screaming at people. Oh, yes, I both sides. It is not won over like that. So what do we do? We need to be people who are always faithfully rowing against the tide. There's a story of a man who walks out one morning into the Puget Sound and he sees out there a big cord, a big cord uh, uh, of Sitka spruce. You can probably make like a thousand guitars or something like that. It make them a lot of money. So he's like, oh my gosh, it's beautiful. And so he gets out in his little kayak and he rows out there and he then, you know, latches it onto his kayak and he goes, okay, now I am going to row myself back home. And he's rowing and he's rowing and he's rowing and he notices now he's 10 feet away from the dock. And he rows and he rows and he rows and after an hour he realizes he is 100 yards away from his dock. What has happened is the tide was going out. But he had to keep rowing in order that he wouldn't end up out in the middle of the ocean and engulfed by, like, eaten by a whale or something, okay? He had to keep rowing. And he began to get late. The moon came up. His wife turned on the lights and was looking for him. Where in the heck did my husband go? And as the tide changed, he rowed and he rowed and he rowed and he came back home. You see, Christianity is not lived always with a tithe in our favor. Joseph lived faithful when the tithe was going out and when the tithe was coming in. And we are called to live faithful wherever we find ourselves. And so what does that mean? It means, parents, your daily act of faithfulness is to help your kids know that they are wonderfully loved by you, and cared for by you, and teaching the ways of God. Your friends, you care and you love for your friends that live next door to you and your buddies. You call them to find out how they're doing. And then these little acts of love over and over again is how we change the culture. Sometimes there are big events and we get out and we speak our minds, but oftentimes, the way we change the culture is slow and unseen and unnoticed acts of love every day. First Thessalonians 4 tells us that we strive to live a quiet life. First Peter tells us to be ready to give a reason for the hopeful living that you have. And why do we do it? Why God is with us? Because God is with us. Why, and what is it for? It's for the sake of the world. And so, Joseph is given the ability to interpret dreams, which are the oracles of God, to bless the world and to continue God's unfolding redemption. 
Okay, and let me tell you, these dreams are whacked out. If they were not interpreted from by you know, but by the Bible itself, I wouldn't be able to figure it out unless you're like there with like a decoder ring or something. It just looks weird, right? You have seven skinny cows and seven plump cows. Uh, Luke Berlin thought it was funny when he was reading in the ESV that the most repeated word in the entire narrative was plump. He just thought it was hilarious. I mean, like. Okay, cool. Uh, and so, he just thought that was funny. It's a whacked out dream, and he's able to explain it. Notice, for the, it's not just for Joseph's sake, but it's for the sake of others. He's given this ability to understand dreams and visions. These are often understood to be God's revelation to the world for their salvation. God has given his people places, talents, resources, positions, abilities, for the sake of the world. In Jeremiah 29, 11, God's people found themselves in exile in Babylon amongst the enemies. And what does God tell them? Does he tell them to, like, yell at their enemies? To tell them, hey, you need to really be more ethical. God isn't going to love you otherwise. No! No, he isn't the church lady. God goes and tells them that they are to... Um, is to go and seek the welfare or the shalom of the city. And in seeking the shalom of the city, they will find their peace, the peace of God. It's for their sake, too. In First Peter, they are told to be people who live upright lives for what? For their own sake? No, for the sake of others, to bear witness to God's goodness. We are given all these things in order that we may see it happen and, and infiltrate the world and to change things. God's people have always been the faithful presence He has used to benefit society. In the first century, when there was infanticide, when if you didn't want a child, what did you do? You threw them out in the refuse pile. And how did Christians revolt against that? They went out and they picked the babies up and cared for them and raised them as their own. That was a countercultural protest that was changing the world. More than that, think about labor rights, women's rights, civil rights. God's ethics, God's ways of doing things have worked for His people for the sake of the world. It's hard, though, to serve your enemy or to, to love your neighbor if you always see them as your enemy. It's hard to bless those you don't you, you believe doesn't they don't deserve it. But that's the thing about blessing, no? No one deserves God's presence. Nobody deserves God's grace. Nobody deserves God's mercy. Think about it. If it really came down to your hard work, do you really deserve it like I deserve it? No. The Bible tells us we don't deserve any of that. More than that, think about it this way. Do you believe your enemies deserve God's, God's grace? That you're like, that's easy. No, they don't. Those thinking Democrats, those thinking Republicans, those thinking baby boomers, those thinking millennials, those thinking mask wearers, those thinking non mask wearers. Oh my God, you can't stand them. You know, it's easy for us to condemn them. But what if God is working in your life? in order that you may bless them. 
to love your enemies. Jesus says, what good is it to love those who love you? I say, love your enemies. To which everybody's all like, excuse me? Love your enemies? That's crazy. Love a Democrat? Love a Republican? Nuts. Love, love a baby boomer? Love, love the person who goes the wrong way and down the grocery aisle? Love that person? Love the terrible driver? Come on. Can't love that person, but that's the truth of the gospel, isn't it? That God loves those who are opposed to Him, those who are really His enemies, those of us who snubbed our nose at God, who sinned against God, rebelled against God. God goes and gets those people, and that's the heart of the gospel. He lives His life and comes for the sake of the world, and we as His people are to participate in that. And so Joseph kind of starts to shape and form that this is the way they're supposed to live. It is so countercultural, so different. You see, Joseph handed over to the enemy, and it works out for the salvation of the world. And we know that Jesus is the one true innocent older brother, sold into slavery by our own sin, thrown into the pit of death because of his own integrity, and in the false witness of others for the salvation of who? His enemies. He turned over to his enemies to save them. And that's what we remember at the Lord's Supper here. We remember that Jesus was the one who was turned over to save us, who didn't lift a finger, and who would forget him for years. table reminds us of that, that his broken body is our healing, that his poured out blood is our new life. And through that brokenness that he experienced, we are made whole. And it is for the sake of the world. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, I pray that you would meet with us now in your supper, that we may be transformed that we, your people, may become more like you, that we may understand and live for the sake of the world. Help us now as we confess, pray, and we partake, that we may feast with you, knowing that you have not abandoned us, you have not left us, but your presence is with us always, because Jesus lost the presence so that we may have it. Let us now come to you in the table and be thankful. In Christ's name, amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks and praise. Let us give thanks to the Lord. Let's affirm our common faith together now by uh, through the Apostles' Creed, on the screen. Together, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, 